Welcome to the New Models Podcast. This episode on the future of creator communities is being jointly released in advance to you and to Joshua Citarella's community. If you're on the New Models Discord server, you know that we've been thinking a lot lately about the digital architecture that underpins New Models. Our server, our aggregator site, how we will evolve them, and the ways these digital places link to other dark forest enclaves, such as Josh's and others creator streams. A New York-based artist who for many listening probably needs no introduction. Josh has been a guest on the New Models podcast twice before, and also joined us last year at Trauma Bar und Kino for a virtual lecture on Gen Z's online political expression. We're sharing the following conversation with you to take you behind the scenes of how we're thinking about our respective platforms and the ecosystem we hope to seed in the coming months. A few notes before we begin. Thank you to Seth Stolbun, who funded a round of research earlier this year on creator-to-fan networks, creator communities, and possible institutional counterparts. One cool result of this research has been the formation of Stolbun.institute, which Seth and the Stolbun collection have just soft-launched this month with the aim of solving some of the issues you'll hear us address on this pod. Stolbun.institute, go check it out. If you do, you'll see that the first content season of the Stolbun Institute is Shadowlands on D and Re platforming. After it's released to the public, this podcast episode will be archived as part of this season. This podcast episode will be archived as part of the Shadowlands season. Secondly, you'll hear us mention some Web3 tech stuff on the pod. New Models and Josh have also been working with Matt Dryhurst and Holly Herndon, Duncan Wilson, Cullen Miller, and James Geary on a new tool called Channel. We'll be sharing more details on this with you very soon. Lastly, thank you to Kaleidoscope Magazine for giving us the impetus to record these thoughts and for graciously letting us take their initial prompt of American memetics and expand it into a discussion around how said meme culture and the structures of Web2 have profoundly changed Western cultural institutions, perhaps irreversibly, for better or worse. An excerpt of this conversation is slated to appear in Kaleidoscope's summer issue, so look out for that. I'm Lil Internet, joined by New Models co-hosts Caroline Busta and Daniel Keller. We're joined again by Joshua Citarella, and here's our conversation from March about the future of creator communities and American memetics. Let's get into it. So New Models, I mean, Josh, I think a bit like you, New Models, its format is evolving as fast as the media landscape is evolving. Its genesis is in 2017 when I was working for a legacy art publication in Berlin that Texas felt very... <laughs> yes, Texas to Kunst. Um, I was working for a legacy art magazine. That's so funny to call it that. A, a quarterly art magazine in Berlin that felt uncomfortable with 
addressing memes, addressing the material that was increasingly defining the most volatile part of the visual communicational landscape. And I thought, okay, well, we needed to have some space outside of this legacy media in order to address what was happening. And we started as an aggregator site. And then out of that grew a podcast to give some meta commentary that developed a listenership. The listenership wanted a place to speak. Someone suggested Discord and very, rapidly, the Discord ground-up conversation became as important as the top-down stream, where you are giving a stimulus, but then 50% of your time is spent receiving what's coming back from your community, metabolizing that, and sending it out to some kind of larger public or clear net space. So, yeah, I mean, I think that the audience becoming stakeholders, that's a real theme. And I think you can even talk about the like post-internet to podcaster to community admin pipeline, because it really does feel like the next step in that. And I think it's different than other podcasts, let's say like the previous generation of Patreon successful podcasts, where it is really much more this community focus. I mean, compared to let's say Red Scare, which has a really, really active subreddit, but I feel like having an active Reddit is somehow very different than the Discord space and the type of stuff that happens there. And like, I don't see Red Scare fans coming together and creating yearbooks or anything like that. There isn't the same type of generative energy. It's something really beyond a fan club. That's what I'm saying. Red, Red Scare is a vibe. New Models is a Place. way of life. Mm, yeah. <laughs> right. But I do think that that's the trajectory. And I'm curious to see who else is doing the same thing. I tend to think of these spaces as being indicative of a general market failure in the art world, where although there's ample funds in the institution, they're not allocated to these projects. And so essentially what we had to do is people who have now come from <laughs> through jogging to Bruce High Quality to cloud-based institutional critique to UV Production House, it's like, you know, it's almost like a decade of working in the art world that is one node removed in the network diagram. And for whatever reason, we can earn a better living as podcasters. And we're doing the same projects that we would normally be doing, but there's no institutional funding to do this stuff. And it begs the question of like, why are these conversations not being invited into the institutions? I think very vividly of a high contrast scenario where this was in 2017 and I was in a studio visit and I was, it was a picture of me as a precarious freelancer in my Lower East Side Chinatown apartment. And outside the window is this fancy luxury building and I'm like talking about class conflict and like dystopian sci-fi and whatever. And then the guy, <laughs> dealer, collector, he's like, yeah, I live in that building. Like he literally <laughs> lives in the Frank Gehry fucking building with the Uber chopper. And I'm like in my apartment wow. that has a toilet in the shower. And I was like, fuck, this is, I'm done. Like there's no future for me in the art world. So, yeah. I, I mean, the great yeah, oddity yeah. now is that like in the last few weeks, last few months, we've kind of learned how... <laughs> uh, how precarious it actually is to be on the platform. So this platform versus institution question has now taken on new meaning, but uh, you know, years and years of exploring these questions in detailed ways. And now we are in some ways a case study for what that's going to be. Yeah. I always found it a bit strange that, and I guess it was an arrangement of convenience, but that over the Trump era, the left basically made this partnership with the platform terms of service in order to get people deplatformed. And now, of course, we're seeing people on the left being deplatformed. 
And as the right has already for quite some time started its own platforms, began finding alternative spaces to talk about utterly bullshit conspiracy theories and toxic politics, the left starting to find these dark forest spaces, these shadow land spaces of where can you build or occupy that allows you to escape from the oversight of the algorithms and these private monopolistic platforms. And I think a key thing that also we're trying, what we need to solve is make your audience not dependent on a platform for mediation, but like a portable audience. And of course, that's one of the big benefits of Web3 stuff. Your membership is distinct from any specific platform. In theory, Discord or Patreon could deplatform us at any time. And of course, we have all of our other backup channels and we could tweet about getting deplatformed and probably we'd be able to port over a lot of our audience somewhere else. But if the membership was tokenized and was on a blockchain that can't be erased, then that audience is sort of portable. And if it made sense for us to migrate to a different type of platform besides Discord or Patreon, then we'd be able to do that freely. And our relationship with the audience would be maintained. I think that's that's something that hasn't really happened yet and something that's going to be really crucial for creating a sustainable shadow land. So if I can just maybe offer a a synopsis of, of how I'm understanding this conflict at the moment... We're looking at both an institutional failure where there is not funding allocated to these topics, to these questions, and then we're also running up against the terms of service and things like this on the platforms. So the question is, where do you go? Is it a lesser of two evils question? Is there a third alternative or something like that? And I think the closest thing that we've come up with so far is, as Carly has been describing it, this dark forest analogy, which is essentially what is kind of happening in the discord, where I feel like we're having these high-res, rigorous conversations that then trickle out in the form of memes and posts and essays and things like this. Podcasts, of course. Totally. Quick note of clarification. The conversation we're having right now is operating on a few different levels. First, Kaleidoscope Magazine asked Josh and New Models to talk to each other about American memetics for their summer issue. While we do have some thoughts on the subject, we've been equally interested in what's happened to legacy institutions in the wake of Web 2 and the visual and political cultures it's engendered. For Kaleidoscope, we extracted a clean 2000-ish words, specifically on memes. But... In the actual audio, we jump back and forth between memes and institutions and back to memes, as we do here when I asked Julian if he could do a quick ELI 5 on what memes were in the aughts and how their cultural status has evolved since. Well, of course, like the term came from Richard Dawkins and Susan Blackwell and these people who started just thinking about media in evolutionary biology terms of things spreading virally, uh, ideas and concepts spreading virally. And and then, of course, in terms of internet memes, there was very early things, the dancing baby, Mr. T ate my balls. That's a really, really old one. AOL days, early websites. You know, when two channels started in Japan, That's when memes started functioning almost as a sort of slang, a language that came out of a particular sort of isolated community. And then, of course, 4chan was essentially the American version of this culture and type of mechanics of website. Um, And the interesting thing about 4chan, though, and I've mentioned this before in previous episodes, but it's important, is that it always operated as like, the most instantaneous extreme focus group you could imagine. If you post something on 4chan and nobody replies to it, 
it vanishes entirely from the site within about two minutes. So it's just like this insanely fast arms race of grabbing attention. And at its peak, there could be 100,000 users on 4chan at any time. And that's how Pepe the Frog came around, how Rick Rowling came around. And I mean, there was a time in the late aughts where every single meme online came from 4chan, all of it. The swarm essentially is an algorithm in itself. It boosts to the top things that resonate the most with the most people. Right. But then memes suddenly became much more mainstream. And they also seem to be the domain of Gen Z and like a really important form of communication. Josh or Dan, do you want to continue the story? I would say generally the crucial change was that sometime around 2015 or 2016, memes became really politically significant. And before that, it was much more about mm-hmm. self-expression or whatever, just internet culture. And it was even before meme magic, but around then when I think, um, of course there's precedent for that. I'm not saying like really memes only became political then, but that's when people recognized the political power that they had. At the same time that memes became political, didn't politics become a lot more meme-like? Yes, <laughs> I think that's fair to say. <laughs> yeah, there's a few contributing factors there, certainly, where like the memeability of the Trump presidency, for sure. There's also something that in a series of internal panel discussions at Rhizome, Uh, I think we have to credit Michael Connor for this. To some degree, these are the early adopter benefits. Social media was set to explode, regardless of, of who happened to be the candidate. And then on top of that, you have the multiplier effect of the aesthetic phenomena of the Trump campaign consuming all of culture. Uh, I think there's a way to divide these things of like, Meme uh, subcultures or small pockets of consensus reality, uh, dark forest spaces, etc., they can act as incubators or as a form of quarantine. And when you get neither, things get like much worse and you just maintain steadily on the deep uh, neoliberal decline. Um, so potentially there was a period where 4chan acted as a space of quarantine where people could get their frustration out and uh, you know, live out their fantasies or post into the void and vent rage or something like that. And then at one point it shifted to incubator and those things sprouted. And so you would have something that was quantitatively undetectable in the Google trends or whatnot, and then would spike enormously with almost no signal and no warning. So a lot of the conversation around um, preventing disinformation, preventing stochastic violence and things like this is about this early detection. Like, how do you detect a meme before it becomes mainstream? And, you know, in some cases, that's very beneficial. So that brings us back to where we are generally in this, like, platform institution discussion and our role as artists, because we based on the virtue of the communities that we're adjacent to and our job as being creatives and what have you, we frequently get access to very large, very visible platforms that we can legitimize kind of crazy radical ideas. So you're on this tightrope between like the institutions and the platforms and um, it's not especially clear like if exit is really an option. And I feel like I had these things sorted out well. And now... I should mention, I've just exited 60 days of shadow ban. Wow. Like I had to do a solo show and launch a book. And it's like extremely clear to me that I work for Instagram and my wages were docked for misbehavior on the job or whatever, because I could reach like (laughs) 1% of my following. And on the stroke of midnight on March 1st, the day 
I made my first tweet ever in my life, my first tweet. Magically, the shadow ban was lifted. So I'm I'm so fucking paranoid right now because I'm like, it's trying to work for someone else. And then Instagram's like, no, you work for us. You can't possibly leave. Brad started a Discord that same day and his shadow ban was lifted, you know, at least partially. Like, yeah. So you think the platforms are targeting you and they're they're trying to lure you back. And they somehow realize that you started a Twitter or that Brad started a Discord? I think in the case of Brad, I think there's definitely someone who works for the government who has a file with his name on it. Yeah. No no yeah, shadow yeah. of a doubt for that. Yeah. Cause I mean that meme with the, you know, his brain, no his heart, like there's a folder marked Brad. The Biden meme. Yeah, that and the undeclared yeah. Bitcoin. The undeclared Bitcoin fortune. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think for me it's I think what we watched was a general tightening of the terms of service. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting when you say you work for Instagram. A lot of these platforms have started to introduce uh, micropayment forms. They see what's happening in these web 2.5 spaces like Substack or like Patreon. And if you are outside of their Overton window of acceptability, well, then you get fired from your job. And that is a radical change. Uh, Just to reiterate something we said in the beginning, you do need to have light leak from ClearNet. Like what you're doing in the dark forest zone is only, I mean, it has its own value, just like spending time with your family has its own value. Like that's a good value. But in order to leverage that value, whether it's political or whether it's economic or cultural, you have to have some communication line to a clear net space, to a larger platform. And it's really telling that at this moment, culture sector institutions, they also are subservient to the ClearNet platforms. I don't know if it's worth meditating for a moment on what institutions were so scared of in 2015-16 when they started, you know, because if you think of the aughts, you think of vice, you think of like a very different kind of cultural approach. You're giving me the easy one here. Yeah, all right, fuck it, I'll say it. Uh, (laughs) The issue is that we are in the most rapacious era of capital in the last hundred years. Like this is absent 1914 where children are working in coal mines in Manchester or some shit. This is the worst period and we're on a pretty steep downward trajectory. So capital is wrapping itself in the moral rhetoric of, you know, all of these like woke diversity, what have you. And it's prioritizing institutional funds for the most effective form of recuperation and optics and reputation washing. And one thing, it's like, it's the soft squeeze of just where institutional uh, funds are being allocated. But if you're trying to point the finger or the critique at the relationship between arts patronage and what is happening in the rest of the world, like, that is not very efficacious for the reputation laundering that the art world traffics in. So people move to crowdfunding, right? Crowdfunding is a way of boosting counter-hegemonic narratives. And the art world is like, you know, at the zenith of that pyramid. But, you know, this whack-a-mole approach, it's been pretty disastrous. Like deplatforming people from Twitter has just sent them to Parler. Deplatforming Parler is just sending them somewhere else. I feel like you're treating the symptom and not the cause. And unless you, you know, unless you can magically realign wages and productivity and remove alienation from American life and and everything else, then these problems are just going to continue to reproduce themselves. Yeah, I mean, yes, the institutions are really bad. There's historical injustices, they're exploitative, all that is true. But the platforms are way worse. They don't even donate to the museums. They don't care about culture. 
like at least the aristocrats funded the opera as like civilization is like visibly falling apart and the infrastructure doesn't work. But like we can't even get Silicon Valley people to donate to the museum, like literally in their town. So that's because they have amazing wall murals at their headquarters <laughs> and, and that are like by local artists. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> what are you talking about, Josh? They invest in the arts, just not like elitist art. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. It is against gatekeepers. Finally, we're, yeah. I mean, this platforms probably believed it themselves, like they were getting rid of gatekeepers. And then, of course. Yeah. Well, not all gatekeepers are created equal, right? Like editors, yes, some, curators, yeah. like there's good gatekeeping and then there's bad gatekeeping. Yeah, I think it's... There are bad editors and curators. There are, yes, 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 there are, absolutely, <laughs> yeah. But that's also like, <laughs> yes, yes. you know, those subjective decisions. not an inherently bad decisions. thing at all. Expertise is not bad. Gatekeeping is not inherently bad. Right. I think that's very true. I mean, and something that's characteristic of your community of new models is that there is a degree of gatekeeping. We're like this two-way osmosis system between ClearNet and Dark Forest. So we're just basically a filter. It's not so much a gatekeeper. I, I sometimes give this kind of silly, clumsy analogy, but I feel like the institutions, uh, like mainstream capital A art institutions, are the Titanic and crowdfunding and discord and the communities that we're trying to cultivate now are a type of a life raft. But in the long term of this, my objective is to redock with the institutions once they've course corrected to avoid the giant neoliberal iceberg. You know, like I really do believe in the importance of institutions, the importance of curation and expertise and all these things. But it's just so clear how dysfunctional they are at the moment where I'm doing something that is clearly of interest and very relevant, and I'm doing it to a sizable audience online, but for some reason, you can't get institutional funds allotted to support what you're doing. So you have to take to crowdfunding. And um, potentially, that path leads to a very dystopian cyberpunk Blade Runner corporatism that is uh, equally unpreferable. Right. On the other hand, I mean, the Titanic sinking and big tech is making all of these like carnival cruise lines where uh, the cruise ships are coming in with like plastic water slides and Macarena club nights and <laughs> pools that smell like chlorine and piss like and buffets like, you know, and that's their replacement. It's all... Ursats. Yeah, I thought the Titanic analogy, I thought you were going to say we were the orchestra, not the life raft. But. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, pla- the Patreon and these platforms, yeah, the Dark Forest are life rafts right now. And it- I think something that Josh pointed out in a previous conversation, which is worth repeating here, is that so the institutions say that they want to center marginalized voices and they want to platform women or people of color or anybody who's not whatever they consider to be the oppressor. Okay, that's fine. That's a, that's a good thing to do. But unless they've radically changed their funding structures, artists who do things for museums, they don't make a lot of money off of that exchange. It's expected that their market will then improve if they have museum exposure and they will sell their paintings through their gallerists. But their exchange with the museum, I mean, maybe they've changed and maybe some museums do pay their artists a lot of money for exhibitions. But so you have Black voices, older women voices, outsiders not being paid while they're laundering the reputation of museums. Meanwhile, those who would have previously been in museums have left and are now making money on Patreon and these other uh, from these other sources. And so it's actually just delaying the ability for 
people who were marginalized historically by museums to get on life rafts. It's like giving them almost a disadvantage because they are now stuck in museums. I'm not saying this in the most elegant way, but do you know? I think I know what you mean, though, for sure. It ends up being a consolation prize because you have like a last mover's advantage, even though you're being prioritized in the institutions, but they're dying institutions. Right. And then at the same time, you're not getting in on whatever new economies are evolving. You're still dependent on... Right, right, right. I think that's fair to say. I mean, it's also... Okay, so (laughs) not to belabor this, but I feel like what we're watching play out in the art world is very clearly an infra-elite conflict where representative diversity does very little to transform the structure of the economy. And I think what I came to in a painful way relatively early on is that uh, let's say, for example, I used to use I used to use John Raffman as the example for this, but maybe I'll I'll mention someone else just so it isn't especially tinged with all of the other <laughs> unintended um, things that I'm trying to demonstrate for this analogy. Um, so let's say who should I throw under the bus here? Let's say Artie Verkant, a dear friend, very talented artist. Let's say Artie Verkant is a better artist than I am. Artie Verkant might be twice as good of an artist as I am. Artie Verkant is not 100,000 times better of an artist than I am. So the problem here is the way that resources are allocated within the art world. And what you what you start to realize is that, well, unless I can get 100,000 times more talented sometime, I don't know, in the next year or something, I'll work really hard, I promise, is that what is actually most necessary, what would make the most meaningful material difference in my life is just the general benefits of social democracy. I actually don't want to earn an income through the art world. I want to be a freelancer, but I want to earn three times the wage and work half of the time. You know, like if you can be, instead of a Sunday painter, you could be a Wednesday through Sunday painter. That is a more preferable life than fiercely competing and trying to tear each other down for these increasingly scarce resources within the institutions. So, I hate to hate to tell you, Josh, but Alec Monopoly is a million times better <laughs> of an artist than you are. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry what to throw Artie people? under the bus for that one. <laughs> people, people a is a billion times, hundred million times better he than you be. as an artist. Good, you need yeah. you need more puns about money. I mean, one thing that I don't should be mentioned is like I enjoy being on the internet more now than I have in many many years partially just because this ecosystem kind of exists finally. And I really think we were in a weird, awkward interim period for the last several years. And it just finally now really feels fruitful again in a way that like early post-internet, this kind of experimentation and like naive hope for Web3. And that's cool. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, it really does feel like this new wide open plane right now where the art world has also become so irrelevant culturally that it doesn't even, for me anyways, doesn't feel like something that I have to consider. Of course, we're going to be in Kaleidoscope, I guess, probably not this excerpt, but there's full autonomy at this point. Sorry. I I would say though that um, we've tried to map this before and I would say that Kaleidoscope and Novambra and I mean, I guess you could imagine like late teens Balenciaga, but there is a zone of creative production, which is like not squarely in the legacy industries. And I would say that Kaleidoscope fits there. They're not exactly a dark forest, but they're very much like working old school social networks off chain. Like it's not exactly a clear net space. I mean, it is like Kaleidoscope has a big commercial presence also, but it's more niche than say a Condé magazine I mean, there's always been like good and bad art institutions, but I don't think we can say that Kaleidoscope 
is anything other than an art institution. I mean, it's a, it's one of the better ones. I would disagree. I would disagree. I really don't think that, I mean, I would be interested to hear what they have to say. I really think that they stand outside. I mean, just their embrace of a lot of mainstream things and they're like, you know, art institutions would be A, way cagier about inviting in mainstream fashion and also wouldn't be able to get mainstream fashion. Carly, would you say the this Biennale was the last hurrah yes. of a certain yes. era of oh, yes. it felt like it then. World. We all knew it then too, which I think is pretty right. notable because I think a lot of the times you don't really know that a historical period is turning in the moment, but that was one of the very clear ones. I think though too, so this was nominated in 2014 and the Biennale happened in 2016. And when they were nominated to be the curators, at that moment, they were being asked to do something they had already produced in 2012, right? So by the time the Biennale happened, it almost felt like a retrospective snapshot. I think for them too, right? Of what that special just pre-apocalyptic art world moment had been. It's kind of true. It was like New York 2012. Yeah, like, Telfar re- res- then. Came, and came back to life in Berlin and it was yeah, a, a lot of fun. Yeah. It was a lot of fun and it was already getting the same kind of criticism that all that stuff would, you know, be completely right. subsumed by. I mean, I think that goes to tell you sort of just how, that art institutions are ill-equipped to deal with the speed that culture is changing at this time. You're booking curators mm. to perform what they do and it's four years later Especially now, that's going to be really out right. of step with culture. There was a few projects at Red Bull Studios in New York around that era. And I was thinking like, oh yeah, that was that was kind of before everything just became too atomized. And But I think there's something different for what we're doing. Because I was searching my head for a analogy of like, oh, are we like this? Or, or what started as a collaborative artist project and then became a space or various examples. I don't want to cite anyone specifically for this uh, just yet. But I think there's something fundamentally different about what we're doing because of the crowdfunding aspect and that Mm. a functional institution is supposed to allot funds uh, for projects that markets would not otherwise support. Mm -hmm. And I think what we're seeing is actually the reverse of that where we are proving through crowdfunding, through being outside the institution, you know, like our incomes are public relatively and that you can see how many subscribers there are. And that should work as a form of market disintermediation, but potentially to to launder their reputations or to show that like we cannot actually grow outside of them or really exit, then we're being offered other <laughs> legacy institutional uh, platforms and things like this. But also there is, I think, just the simple example of like when our channels have more followers than the mainstream legacy institutions, that's when we no longer need to work with them. But that is potentially an order of magnitude beyond where we are now. Maybe that's two years, maybe that's four years down the road, I don't know. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think that as Web3 evolves, it'll be interesting to see how legacy institutions adapt to that space. Specifically, we've seen how difficult it's been for legacy institutions to understand their relationship to the digital. And not, you know, they've tried. There's been a lot of different projects to archive the web or to think through some of the problems of being an artist that's digital first or whatever, but none have really been successful at that. So I wonder as creator communities like ours expand to Web3, the idea of an institutional structure is going to have to be something completely novel. I don't know, if Dan, if you have thoughts on how 
an institution might work in a Web3 space. And maybe also just for anyone who doesn't know, just very briefly say what Web3 is, its specific relation to a blockchain. Okay, yeah, sure. I think Web3 basically refers to applications built off of decentralized networks, blockchain specifically, but not inherently, probably a lot of them on Ethereum. The main thing is that there's it's censorship resistant, it's decentralized. The organization can be delegated. It doesn't have to have necessarily one developer that's public. And there's a more direct relationship between the user and the stakeholder and the developer. Their incentives are aligned with a Web3 platform in a way that with a Web2 platform, there's really an extractor and then there's a sort of feudal underlords. With Web3, there's at least the potential that organizations can be set up in a more horizontal way. And I do think that there's a really good chance that these creator communities are going to turn into DAOs or decentralized autonomous organizations and will really become kind of institutions in themselves. That's really what I hope will happen. And I I see the very inklings of that starting to happen already. It's going to be funny, like being cast out of these institutions and then being invited in as consultants, telling them how to adapt to these new scenarios. Because I think that's really the position <laughs> that we're in at this point. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, and I think it's it's definitely notable that MoMA doesn't have a successful podcast, as far as I know. None of these institutions do. They haven't been able to adapt even to the 2.5 Patreon model of direct audience interaction. So we'll see. Yeah, if I can just throw in something on that topic, I was... I was thinking back in anticipation of this conversation and and trying to understand the potential of these creator communities, for lack of a better term, to grow into pseudo institutional spaces. And you know, the explosion in the memosphere was, I think, uncontestably the most significant visual culture happening in the last half decade. The last like 50 years, I mean, right. really in terms of like a cultural sea change. Yeah, really, really yeah. significant. Yeah. And the, sure. the significance of like a global political consensus, all of these things played out through these aesthetic materials. You know, I mean, the significance of that really can't be underplayed, but I can list basically on one hand, the total number of artists who made work confronting this, wrote about it, made memes, uh, devoted exhibitions and conversation to that. And it just seemed like, there's a meme, I'm going to paraphrase it, but uh, something Brad made a few years ago, like, um, why is it that teenagers on the internet are producing aesthetic materials that are more discursively significant than the stuff happening in the mainstream art world? Right, like that's really pressing on the sore spot, and I, I want to say also that that Rhizome did a great job of signal boosting those projects, and all of us have participated in various things with them over the last few years. But generally, it was kind of like radio silence, and there were these like two tracks of like what is happening in your newsfeed and what is happening in these institutions. And yeah. now, now that they're in a position to respond, like maybe four years later, like it's done, like the whole thing is over, and we're yeah. in a new world, and. So there will just never be significant art about that period, other than like maybe a few things that were posted and maybe somebody saved a few memes or something like that. But yeah, it really feels like a time capsule where the art world, you know, there's like a dozen things, but otherwise it's just this empty vault. 
And at a time when the art world was so well-funded, like the institutions were more well-funded than they had ever been historically. You know, the magazines, of course, they were grappling with dwindling subscriptions and not understanding what it meant to be digital first or whatever. But like this content was explicitly not allowed. And I cannot think of another time in history unless we're thinking of like Nazis talking about degenerate art or something. I mean, maybe that's too strong to include in here. I don't know if it's useful. No, I but think, I mean, it seems that's hyperbole, apt. but I think there's a, that's a comparison. And it really does feel like, and looking back, it's just like a dead period. I can't think of, I mean, I'm sure I could get my memory jogged, but I can't think of any like famous artwork even that's been created in the last four years. Like I can't think of... Causes, yeah. Sergeant Pepper's exactly. band. <laughs> when was the big last sensational Jordan Wilson thing? Was that before or after Trump? I can't think of anything on that level that has you know escaped from the art world and became a meme itself. Anything that seems right. kind of like universally appealing and I don't think it's material reasons. It's really fear or something, right? I mean, it was really, I think there's immaterial reasons. Yeah. Um, I did want to speak a little bit about the American element here. Of course, message boards happen in lots of different languages. For instance, Wojak comes from Polish boards, right? Um, that said, I, I think it's fair to say that the American memosphere has been dominant. Dan, you've often talked on our podcast about American politics being its number one form of entertainment, but also its top export. Also, you know, related here is the fact that the platforms on which these memes are being generated are American. Uh, so even if it's somebody who's sitting in Germany who's posting to their own Facebook or whatever, they're doing that essentially on American territory. It's like an extra statecraft of America's corporate sphere. So memes, in a sense, are, at least during this time period, they are predominantly American. Is that fair? Or how would you think about American memetics? I think that tracks for sure. You can't really separate the nature of the platform and what gets prioritized from the content. I think that's fair to say. And of course, if those platforms are all mostly headquartered within, you know, 50 square miles of each other, then of course they're going to have a lot of similarities. I mean, I think that you can say, yeah, politics is the main export, but clearly it's really internet stacks and financialization and the politics that has been diffused through that, that happened to be the fuel to get people engaged. Ultimately, it's just content for these sort of neutral networks that are being built just to sort of expand American power around the world. Mm -hmm. And okay, TikTok is Chinese. There's a little bit of something different there. And I think we can start talking about Chinese memetics for sure. And then Telegram is Russian, which I think is notable. Mm -hmm. Of course, I think it's specifically notable just because that's like the last exit for people that are being deplatformed from everything else. Somehow Telegram is the last resort. Right. So I think like memes that are happening in Telegram I don't know if we can call them American. I mean, it's sort of like that's where the anti-American stuff is going to happen. I don't know. It's it's ironic because that's where all the American nationalists are of headquartered course, now. Of it's course, on Telegram. Yeah. The uh, afternoon or the evening of the sixth, after storming the Capitol, they all posted partner lists of if you follow me, follow these ten other accounts, and you know the first thirty minutes of each of their streams that evening were an onboarding tutorial for how to get on Telegram. Yeah, it's curious. Of course, from a Russian perspective, uh, that is anti-American, American nationalism. It's polarizing and disruptive to the internal fabric of America and therefore distracting and weakening and also damaging for the American brand in the eyes of the Russian population. Mm. Yeah, it's destructive of American imperialism, maybe not domestic policy, but an isolated and 
conservative right. America is better for Russia inherently. Yeah, like I wonder if like the aggregate effect of the American memosphere, if that was like good for America's brand because it showed that there was some kind of pulse or else and, and just kept America in the minds of everybody nonstop for four years. Or if it was not bad, because the overarching message is that America's broken. Yeah, I think that like we're we're just clearly past the place of bad or good PR, and it's just neural activation. And it definitely did a good job of activating the world's America neurons. Yeah. And I think that's ultimately what counts. To some degree, I mean, America is exporting these political trends, theory trends. Like, I mean, France, which has you know, had such a mainstream edgelording culture for so long from the um, 70s media theorists to the new French extremity cinema in the early 2000s, late 90s, all the way to like, you know, when Me Too was in the big news cycle, France had the most major figures checking it and being critical of it. And I think also now... I it was edgelord, though. I feel like that's just more of like a French legacy, French cultural thing. I don't well, know I'm talking from an American perspective. Uh-huh. Okay. I, I mean, right. And even in terms of American identity politics, France also is like, oh, this is cultural imperialism or something. Like this is an American cultural export that does not resonate with French mm-hmm. culture, mm-hmm. you know, like I, I heard this, I don't know, an interview with some French woman academic who was like, you know, the, these French philosophers that Americans are obsessed with, it's just a small fraction of our <laughs> breadth right. of our French philosophy. And we have no idea why they're so obsessed with them. <laughs> right. And and so, I mean, fearing that framework, it does solidify the fact that these social political trends are the ones that demand the most attention of online discourse. Those are American exports. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, ironic that a lot of the radical American politics did indirectly come from French theory, but regurgitated back in a much more moralizing (laughs) tone. And that's the big difference. And that's, of course, I think always been the sort of French problem with American culture, right? Was being crass, but then also being really moralizing. Mm -hmm. That's American mimetics at its core, right? (laughs) Well, France has been fueling American radicalism since 1776. Exactly. I mean, it's a a long-standing... Uh, motor, I guess, the two cultures grinding against each other. What is it that you hope this community, the Discord community, the broader new models as an entity, what is it that you hope this could grow into? And I'll just offer a, a little bit of background info of conversations I would have with Brad, especially when we were doing UV and uh, various projects throughout the years, is that we felt like we were competing for the hearts and minds of young people, BFA students, people who are looking to artists a few years older than them. And like, do I want to be like XYZ who's in the institution? Or do I want to be like this renegade character on social media, you know, to add a little bit of drama to it. (laughs) But it seems the broadest description that fits most people in my Discord community are people who are currently enrolled in arts or humanities, liberal arts, what have you, currently enrolled in universities, and they're underserved by the current curriculum. So they come here to become intellectually stimulated, to learn and and whatnot. And I think this lineage, passing of the baton, this is kind of what it's building towards. It's like, are we tech startups? (laughs) Are we institutions? (laughs) Are we publishing platforms? Maybe we're a little bit of all of them. But maybe to concretize this question, if you were a young person, you're a BFA student, and you had the option of publishing on, uh, let's say, a legacy institution or publishing on 
Io. I think most people are going to choose new models because that's where the cultural capital is. And does that represent some opportunity for this to correct some of the seemingly intractable problems in institutions? Yeah, I have a thought, but I'd be interested to hear your response to it. I mean, I, I would guess if I were to like say what I'd hope for is that new models ends up kind of, it's like a union for the mind. <laughs> and I can just imagine new models being this sort of overarching meta layer for different forms of creative production and thinking where it, it almost acts like, I don't know, maybe like the Discordians or something, where it's like a loose meta group of people who have a similar vision and way of understanding. I mean, I think that that's right in terms of the affect. I think to maybe speak more directly to Josh's question in terms of structure, I would hope that new models, which began as a top-down stream, is now top-down and bottom-up, can... right figure out a way to become a kind of Dyson sphere of this energy and that it can somehow be self-perpetuating. I imagine that Web3 mechanics could be helpful or some system of governance that has, even if it's in fiat, a kind of proto-DAO or something, some kind of collective pot. So that, I mean, I hate to, 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 to merge your early analogy to a life raft, Josh and Dan, your experience with seasteading. I guess, I guess, I guess I'm imagining a kind of, yeah, a kind of confluence of those two concepts that can self run. I mean, I think another thing that's been important to new models is being very open ended about some kind of final form, like the the name, I mean, it's obviously, it's funny to say it's new models and all the illusions, but really that's part of the experiment, what different forms this can take. I don't, I don't know if, if Dan, if you want to add nuance yeah. to that or if you yeah, think I, mean, I just think that we do have amorphous, flexible framework from the very beginning. And like, I think that's one of our strengths that we don't necessarily force the stuff that isn't working. And we're, I mean, I don't think we expected the discord to be as important as it's become. And it really became the nerve center in a way that we thought the aggregator would be. The fact that we can just be open to these things is already better than a lot of institutions. But I really do think, yeah, Web3 and what this can turn into is just a mesh or network for aligning incentives. And greater democratization is good, but yes, with some sort of gatekeeping structure there that keeps it... I just think that like very often there's these tech attempts at democratization just means flattening it and then letting raw powers of numbers, whether it's attention or or capital in the case of a lot of blockchain voting. Right. And like we're in a position where we're trusted stewards of new models, you know, that eventually could become elected. But I do think that there's some kind of structure that we have that is going to be really beneficial towards being more adaptable than institutions are and navigating whatever is next. Yeah, I have a lot of hope that DAO structures are going to finally be useful for people. Hopefully transaction costs will be low enough that doing these things on blockchain networks won't be too cumbersome. So people with not that much money to pool will be able to do it. I think the the opportunities there are just so clear. I can imagine, I could imagine a future that would involve younger people in their 20s having membership in multiple communities like yours and like new models, participating in projects that in return, they get DAO remuneration they also get credibility for working on projects that are bigger than themselves. This stands in as a kind of replacement for what art school had been or any kind of creative sector, higher education. 
And they sort of survive in their 20s by participating in these different communities and maybe the occasional freelance job. But this becomes a real kind of guild system until they start whatever they're going to start in their later 20s or 30s. Um, I mean, we're three people who each also do external freelance in addition to, or other kinds of things in addition to new models. But as an artist who's made this your practice fully, how does this, how do you imagine the next 10 years, if you were to speculate? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, uh, I think you put it aptly that we have to be quick on our feet and adapt. I had initially thought that it was going to be the podcast, and then it was going to be the live stream, and then it was going to be the Discord. And it seems to be this culmination of all of these different things. And uh, in doing a significant amount of like survey research and finding other channels, and there's just not something that's exactly comparable to what we're doing. And I think that speaks to the potential of what we're talking about. So, yeah, totally. Yeah, we have to have a presence for the meantime on these mainstream platforms to allow just a certain level of click-through that we're findable. Uh, essentially, the way I'm treating Instagram now is just like the phone book that people will yeah. <laughs> people will find my name and then find the real stuff on Patreon, the real stuff on Discord. And yeah. in a few days, we're going to be launching a blog, which is the collaborative work of a bunch of really active people in the Discord. This will become a platform to pool creative labor, creative projects. And I think, you know, in general, all of this stuff goes back to the question of market failure that our generation of artists, mini generation, uh, lived through with the collapse of about a dozen galleries, <laughs> a dozen yeah. plus galleries in New York, specifically in the Lower East Side, and this massive consolidation and bursting of a bubble. Uh, and if you look at the career trajectory of people who are now graduating, who are talented, ambitious, everything else, there's just not opportunities and places for them to show Maybe there's project spaces, there's ample number of project spaces, but it's either project space or blue chip, and there's nothing in between. So if what we're doing here can become you know, a type of creative incubator of sorts, maybe that is helpful. But gathering all of these creative people and publishing their work is the first step to whatever these communities grow into. Right, yeah, totally. I wonder if it's worth mentioning Friends of Benefits. That's maybe something that's similar to what we're doing, but a little different direction than the other institutions. Friends of Benefits came, I don't know, a year after we started our Discord. And Trevor McFedries, who was one of the creators of Lil Michaela, uh, he also created a tokenized Discord community called Friends of Benefits. Well, it's crypto-focused and it's tokenized. And there's a community token called FWB, which you need to hold to get access to the Discord. So as opposed to using Patreon, like we do, to gate access, it's using this token. There's definitely benefits and drawbacks, I think, to doing this. The benefit, especially for early adopters and people who would be just subscribers, they're stakeholders, they feel some sort of literal possession or attachment to the community, and they have a direct monetary incentive for that community to succeed. But by the nature of it being crypto dependent, the focus is crypto in the community itself. And I think the real challenge that I hope what we can tackle is how to take some of these mechanics that I think are really beneficial, having a community token, being able to align incentives, allocate resources, have a treasury, but then not alienate you know, the young creative people that are our audience. And I do think that's a really interesting problem. How to get past the Patreon model, which just clearly has faults towards something that's more Web3. And Friends of Benefits, I think it's a good case study. I think we can't really talk about deplatforming and yeah. replatforming without thinking about stuff like this, I think, happening. 
That's definitely true. Although I do think that anytime you have speculative valuation of a community, then you are inherently going to incentivize things that may be corrosive to the community at scale or over time. And I do think that one of the values of cultural institutions in their ideal form is that they do shelter creators a little bit from the direct UV hit of the most corrosive parts of capitalism, right? And in building Web3 structures, we have to be mindful that, I mean, it's kind of like the inverse problem of art NFTs, right? It's like you have this financial structure and then you're attaching to it an art object. I'm not talking about NFTs in their expanded form, Dan, just specifically oh, like yes. you're buying the Colloquial NFTs in their current form as exactly. stupid collectibles. Yeah. Right, right. If, you, if you're interested, Dan can tell you a lot more about the um, power, NFTs the in a of much NFTs. more interesting. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> yes, exactly. That, that far exceed like the Torquey Pepe gift. But, you know, which I guess is a value of its own. But, um, uh, but uh, you know, if tech has ported in this art NFT model and being like, voila, we have art. Similarly or inversely, if you take a cultural community and then you just put it into a financial structure, you may not end up with the community that you want long term. And I think as new models, we've been very careful about not doing the easy financial solution to something because we wanted to protect the, I mean, maybe this sounds nostalgic, but I don't think with new models, I, I mean, imagine seeing with you, Josh, like it's not like you just want an easy, get rich, quick exit. You want to build something that has value that's not at the whim of the, you know what I'm saying about yeah, like, but I also we think- want to grow old with our community <laughs> and die with our community. Yeah. I, I, mean, I, just think that- I mean, I just don't think, I don't think friends with benefit. I mean, if I, there's a lot of criticism of that model. I don't, yeah, but I think that, that sort of it's like resulting in the opposite of what you're saying is people are incentivized not to sell and stay dedicated to it. I mean, you have to look at the price action of friends with benefits. It's like acted like a stable coin. People aren't selling. And I think that shows you a lot about, and also like NFTs, like also even when there was a sell-off, NFTs kind of stayed fairly highly valued, a lot of them. And of course, it's because it's a bubble, but also it's because like these tokens that are really explicitly fiat in the sense that they're backed by a community or by like a shared interest, those are not at the whims of speculation in the same way, especially because Friends of Benefits is so small that it's just like under the radar of speculators. Uh, I think like, of course, there's it could happen the opposite way, but I think we have to look at like what's happened so far with Friends of Benefits and that has not happened. But it's also been co-evolved with the biggest bubble ever. So, I mean, right, but it was already, I guess it'll be interesting to see what happens this spring. Yeah, but it was already successful like before the bubble really, really got under swing because people like the community. This isn't a useful conversation. Okay, sorry, but I do think what we had, what I said before is... I, I mean, I feel like, again, this comes back to our unique position as artists, where if you are any other form of a content producer, you were already crowdfunding your practice. If you're a musician, if you were um, making videos on YouTube or what have you, but artists, because we were showing in galleries and we were mostly selling luxury artworks to very rich people, we have you know almost 10 years of accumulating a following that was not monetized in really any way whatsoever. So if you look at these communities now, the click-through rates, the conversion rates from viewer to subscriber are astronomical. There's just simply nothing else that is comparable to it. And that's because there's almost a decade of accumulated trust in like, you know, as much as the idea of like a student or a collaborator choosing to liquidate their relationship with me at some point in the future, like (laughs) as much as I don't like that, our communities are relatively speaking, more resilient or resistant to that because of the accumulated trust. 
I mean, that being said, if it comes down to a decision between liquidating the relationship as a possibility and not having a platform at all, of course, yeah, I'm going to go totally Web3, whatever. Right. Well, this is definitely a conversation that I imagine will continue to evolve over the next few months. And It'll be interesting to see under Biden how these platforms evolve. I imagine our conversation on deplatforming and replatforming and where we may take platforms. And I'm sure a lot will depend on how platforms arrange themselves over yes. the coming months. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, also as American platforms lose dominance, I mean the landscape's gonna change. Yeah. Yeah. And the sheer number of people who are continuing to get access to higher bandwidth. I mean, America got the internet first. But that doesn't mean they're going to dominate it forever, right? All right. Well, maybe that's a good place to stop. Thank you for listening to our Thank conversation. You to Thanks, Ciao. Thanks, guys. Ciao. Thank you for listening to the New Models podcast. And thank you, Joshua Citarella, for having this conversation with us. If you don't already subscribe to Josh's Discord stream, etc., it's really great. Patreon.com slash Joshua Citarella. Also, thank you again to Seth Stolbun for tackling the institutional side of this question via Stolbun.institute, which both aggregates and funds cultural content across outlets in the face of an increasingly atomized media landscape. If you want to see what the correlating visuals for this conversation look like, check out the summer issue of Kaleidoscope, hopefully, if they run it. Finally, Lil Internet has been on a job in New York, and Dan has been in Dab's land in Detroit. But everybody is coming back to Berlin, and we will have a fresh topsoil for you then. In the meantime, have a great week, and see you next episode.